Well, beloved, remain standing and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22. We are going to continue to address the parable of our Lord Jesus as he has been confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees. And this parable is the third in a series of his answering and not answering their question. And so before I read it, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us and his word. Let's pray. Now, gracious Father, we do come before you in the sweet and precious name of Christ, our Lord and King. And Lord, we come to beg for light. We come to beg for understanding. Lord, we come to lay ourselves before you, asking you, Father, to make the word effectual to each and every one here this morning. Lord, we pray for those who are here that have a relationship with Christ, that they would be encouraged, they would be strengthened. Lord, they would be led further in their knowledge and understanding of this gospel of grace. And Lord, the duties required of them. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know Christ, that has not put their trust in Christ, that are still this morning resting in their own righteousness, oh God, I pray for their souls this morning. And I pray that you would in your, in your graciousness and Lord, in compassion and love, reach down this morning, Lord, under the very preaching of this word, and make it effectual under their salvation. Lord, save them from their own sin. Save them from the wrath to come. And save them, O oh Lord, from your justice. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And beloved, I want to begin reading from the parable at verse 1. And Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out others' slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, 
but few are chosen. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. About as long as it takes to watch a decent movie, one can turn on an audio recording of the book of Matthew and listen to the whole thing. I highly suggest it. When you are able to sit down and digest that much of the word of God at once, particularly a whole book, you get a sense and feel of its intentions. You, you, you begin to recognize threads of thought and themes and, and points that are being made from the front to the back. The Gospel of Matthew is an expose written by Matthew, the tax collector, one who the Jews would have seen as the chief of sinners in many ways, and yet he is writing to expose the deep ingrained sin of self-righteousness and hypocrisy and prejudice of those who considered themselves to be the people of the living God, the sons and daughters of Abraham. That's why in the very beginning of the book, as he addresses the baptism of John, he highlights and points out that John seeks as a forerunner of Christ and as a prophet sent of God to correct this misunderstanding that somehow that there were these, some of these Jews that felt like they had a privilege standing before God based upon their ethnicity. And they were completely wrong. Now, they did possess privileges and very great privileges. And Paul highlights many of those in Romans 2. One of the chief privileges God bestowed upon them was that they were the custodians of the oracles of God, that they had been granted the revelation of God's will in the covenant of grace and his desire and will and pleasure and delight and compassion to save sinners for his own glory and for his own namesake. But those privileges were not based upon their ethnicity. It certainly wasn't based upon their birthright. They missed it greatly. That privilege belonged to them by covenant by covenant. And that's a, there's a big difference between that, that ethnic line of Israel and the covenantal line of Israel. In fact, I think theologically we could lay out, and we're not going to do it this morning, but for you in your own private study, you could lay out the, the differences in what it looks like for the visible church and invisible church. Those who are in covenant, so to speak, but not of the covenant. And Paul does make that statement in Romans as well. It's not the ones who participate in these outward ceremonies that have a right standing with God automatically. It doesn't mean that all who participated in those outward ceremonies were foreigners to God and not at all. 
Well, there were many of these Jews who participated in these outward means of grace and these Old Testament ceremonies that were right before the Lord. And there were many that weren't as well. In the season of history that Jesus comes into this world that Paul writes in Galatians was at the exact right time, finds Israel in that pitiful state of trusting and resting not in the grace of Almighty God that he had provided for them, but in the ceremonies and in these outward circumstances, in their heritage and in their ethnicity. And it had a great damning and dulling effect upon them. It had blinded them in many ways to the true nature and glory of Jesus Christ. That's why when he was before so many of them, even performing miracles, they could not see him for who he really is. They couldn't recognize him. They could not even grasp the miracles that he was performing in the place of God. They were completely oblivious to it. They missed it because of the deadness of their own hearts and the blindness that they possessed through their own self-righteousness. The parable, brothers and sisters, is a condemnation to the system of righteousness that they had built up over generations that they were leaning towards. This is not a condemnation of legalism. It's a condemnation of abuse of grace. And there's a difference. We're not talking about legalism. You've not heard me say that. What Jesus is condemning in these series of parables, and particularly in this parable, is their abuse of the saving graces of Almighty God. Now, brothers and sisters, what I want to submit to you this morning is that is a very grievous sin in God's sight. You could break the parable up into two distinct parts. It, natu- it naturally lends itself that way. Verses 1 through 10 could stand on its own while verses 11 through 14 could stand on its own. In those first 10 verses, Jesus clearly highlights God's grace, his compassion, God's desire that none should perish, right? The idea, the picture of the king who has sent out his invitation to the marriage feast of his son. No doubt scholars who see this as an invitation to come to the blessed marriage supper of the Lamb, so to speak, this blessed covenant of grace, this invitation to come and to be restored in your fellowship with Almighty God, a fellowship that was broken in the root of mankind, our first parents being Adam and Eve. You see, beloved, we need to come to places like this and we need to see them theologically. 
And this is tragic because so many sermons and so many preachers are, are more dedicated, I would say exclusively dedicated in some cases to some moralistic principles and teaching. There'll be thousands, if not tens of thousands sermons preached this morning on three ways to be a better wife. Nothing inherently wrong with that or three ways to be a, a better person or three ways to be a better neighbor or three ways to overcome this addiction or that addiction. It's not to say, and you're not hearing me say that those things are inherently unuseful, but that's not necessarily the way we come to the, well, the word of God. We come theologically, we come to have our mind filled with truth because of that first obstacle that each person possesses naturally when they come into this world, and that is ignorance. Ignorance of what? Ignorance of the world they live in, ignorance of the God that exists, and ignorance of who that God is and what that God desires and wills for them. And that's why we are so prone to idolatry and creating for ourselves our own gods, our own way, our own system of righteousness. This is nothing new. It is nothing exclusive to the Jews themselves. We are all guilty of this outside of Christ. And Christians are guilty of this. Professing Christians are guilty of this. Trusting in these outward circumstances as good as they are, as glorious as they are, as, as looked to as they are, they possess no power to inherently save anyone. It's the God of those ceremonies. It's the God of these principles. It's the God of this worship. It's the God that we profess to know and love and to come before him and to ask his blessing upon us so that he would secretly, positively, and outwardly, and work in us so that we are outwardly possess, right? The profession of our faith. And the second obstacle that each one of us comes, all men come into this world possessing, is not just an ignorance of who God is and the world they live in, but it's a willful rejection of that God human depravity. That's why Paul says in Romans 3, there is none righteous. No, not one. No one comes into this world possessing the kind of righteousness that's acceptable before God. No one. Our wills are not just bent Beloved, to do evil, our wills are inclined to enjoy evil and to hate what is good. You need to understand this. This parable theologically addresses the compassion of Almighty God that in the beginning when our first parents fell, he condescended. He brought himself down to their level. He walked in the garden, heard by them, and they hid themselves, demonstrating their hatred and fear of him. And what does he do? 
What do we have recorded in those opening chapters of Genesis? We have a record of our first parents' waywardness and our God's desire to save and not leave our first parents and mankind in this state of rebellion and sin, death and sorrow and misery. Amen. Our God was moved with compassion, love, mercy, and condescended to come and to correct what had been broken. What what was broken? The covenant of works. The promise that if they did not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they passed this season of probation and not eating from that tree, that they would possess everlasting life. All they had to do was obey. And they were created for this obedience. Sin had not yet entered into the world. Sin had not yet come into their minds, into their hearts. But it did. And it did when they were tempted by the devil to question God, to question his goodness, to question his love, to question his compassion for them. And they did fall. They did eat and they did fall. Not only corrupting themselves and polluting their own natures and securing for themselves a a, a death, both spiritual and physical, but even for their posterity. And God came to remedy that problem. You see, beloved, the parable itself sets forth the, the justice of God. And I mean, not only do we see that God is has created this feast, this banquet, if you will, and he's invited his people to come and eat. He's invited sinners to come and to partake of this wedding feast. But we also see that he is just and his justice is not in conflict at all with his grace. What was just with the way he treated those who neglected and and spurned his invitation to salvation. Well, the parable highlights that the king mounted up his armies and he came in and he basically destroyed them, which is the result, right? Which is the lawful, just result of any who maintain their own righteousness and their own salvation while spurning what he has offered as real and true salvation. What the, their reward is destruction. That's the teaching. That's the promise that our God will give to all according to their Deeds. And those deeds are either umbrellaed, umbrellaed by the fact that we are in the covenant of works, that we are still maintaining this 
effort to save ourselves or it's under the umbrella of the almighty gracious grace, amazing grace of God whereby we have acknowledged that our righteousness doesn't cut it and doesn't work and our own righteousness is offensive in, in God's sight. It's offensive. That's the parable. The parable teaches us that. And that when we rest in Christ's righteousness that we are accepted and we are made friends and guests of our God and Savior. The parable is a condemnation, beloved, of the abuse of the means of grace. And that's what the Pharisees, that's the scribes, these priests, that's what they were guilty of. They haven't abused this means of grace. Let me give you an example. I think it might help. You know, they were required to offer sacrifices. And now we know by Scripture that the shedding of the blood of animals did not inherently cleanse the soul of any person, Hebrews 9. But look at Psalm 52, or or Psalm 51 rather, and David touches on the importance of the sacrifices, and he uses it sort of in a, a blanket, a negative statement, but you'll get the gist of what he's talking about in this penitent psalm. If you look at the end of it, look at verse 15. It says, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Now, now David does, is not teaching anyone, don't go offer sacrifices. Well, that would have been contrary to what the commandments were in the Pentateuch, in those first five books of the Bible. What do we see in Adam and Eve? We see that God sacrificed an animal, and what did he do with the skins of the animal he sacrificed on on the shedding of blood on their behalf of sin? He clothed them with it. He covered their guilt, so to speak. Because in the Bible, nakedness becomes equated with guilt, And it needs to be covered. It needs to be atoned for. No, what David is saying is, it's impossible for me to offer these sacrifices if my heart isn't right. If my heart hasn't been purged and cleansed of sin, if my heart doesn't truly want to know God and to love God and to desire his ways, then the offering up of these sacrifices are vain and fruitless. They're useless. They're of no use. In fact, they're only offensive in God's sight. Because again, it's an abuse of grace. It pleased God in his infinite wisdom to do what? To get the Old Testament church, if you will, to offer up these sacrifices, to contemplate what it costs, to contemplate the kind of animal, to contemplate the quality of the animal, to contemplate the innocence of the animal. 
and to recognize that I have to have my sins placed on another. And you see the gospel there. That's why John said when Jesus comes up to that baptismal scene, he says, behold, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. He's our sacrifice. Here's the one that all of these animal sacrifices typified. He's the one they pointed to. And those who came to those Old Testament sacrifices and offered them in faith and love saw Christ as their sacrifice. They saw him. But those who just went through the ritual didn't. They were blinded. And that's what Paul says of himself. Because Paul teaches us in Philippians 3 that he was just, just blinded by that Phariseeism and that heritage and those privileges that he did not see it was by grace and by covenant, but by ethnicity. And he repents of it. Paul comes to the realization through the revelation of the Holy Spirit and the truth of Almighty God in his word, the Old Testament. And what does he say? I see all of that as garbage, garbage compared to the riches that I now possess in Christ Condemnation of the abuse of the means of grace. What a, what a truth, right? What a warning to us this morning. And we're not above abusing the means of grace, are we? We're not above singing hymns about the saving love of God and it really not in any way moving us. We're not above hearing the testimony of sinful sinners coming to Christ and it not inspiring us. We're not above it. We're not above recognizing that the preaching of the gospel is a a means, a, a, a primary means that God uses to move us to 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 give us understanding and knowledge, to fill our heads with truth, good truth, right? But it not stopped there, but that it fills our hearts with a desire for holiness, a desire to, to be better, not for the sake of a, a moral sense alone, but for the sake of our God, That tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are the trophies of God's grace, saving grace. That he saves us and sets us up and sets us apart and that we are the demonstration of God's almighty power. How? Unto salvation. Saved from what? Ourselves. Our wretchedness. Our self-righteousness. 
all of the things that we love more than God. He comes to save us from all that and to renew us and make us new creatures, a new creation, and to renew our wills that in this life, yes, we do wrestle with that sin nature, don't we? But faith overcomes. Genuine faith, John says in 1 John, overcomes and is victorious over what? This world that we live in, in us. That God is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, Paul says in Philippians 2. That God is actively working in his people for the, his own glory and for our own good so that when we testify, so that when we sing, it's genuine, it's real, it's sincere, it's glorifying to God. And it's edifying to any that will listen. You know, I, I have found, I mean, we can talk about all of the bad things about social media platforms, and there's plenty of bad things to talk about. But one of the things I do enjoy is going to YouTube and listening to Christian testimonies because they are owned there. I enjoy listening to people talk about how they come to embrace the amazing saving grace of Almighty God, how they've come to a place where they have denied themselves and they have repented of self-love, this superiority of self-love that transcends the love of God. They've repented of it and they've embraced God. They've embraced his will. They embrace the word of God. They embrace the means of grace and they earnestly seek God's blessing in the use of them. It's not these things. It's not the preaching itself. It's certainly not the preacher. I can't even save myself, much less save any of you. I can't even save my own children. I would at least start with myself and then start with them and I can't even do that. We are all dependent upon the power of God. I do plan on preaching another sermon on this parable, but I hope you can see why that so many scholars and so many preachers highlight this parable as being full of the gospel of grace. And it is. It is. I, I guess this morning what I would like to do is I want to lay before you the man found with no wedding garment. Since the parable itself condemns the abuse of the means of grace, notice in verse 11, the king comes to give his inspection of the guests. In verse 11, it says, the king came in to look. The word look there is the idea of inspection over the dinner guests. 
And he saw a man there that was not dressed in wedding clothes. Now let me stop there and continue theologically laying before you the parable. Brothers and sisters, it rightly belongs to God to inspect his church. It's rightly God's privilege to come to each and every one of us who claim his name and to inspect us. How does he do, how does he do this? Well, Hebrews chapter 4 says there's nothing hidden in his sight, speaking of the word of God, that the word of God comes into our lives and goes deep into our inner man and it lays open all of the will and the intentions of our hearts, our motivations, our desires, the, real, the things that really matter to us, he knows. There might be some here this morning trembling now to know that fact. The book of Revelation talks about the inspecting eye of God, the flame of fire. There's nothing that, there's nothing that misses his gaze. He's able to look at the church, and in that case, the seven churches, and he's able to give an accurate description and inspection of the church. And he still does this today. The judgment begins with the household of God. All of this chaos, all of this national chaos, all of the international chaos, all of the things that we are suffering as a nation, as a people, all stems from the fact that the church has not done her job. The church has failed in her testimony. The church has failed in her preaching of the gospel. The church has failed to call sinners to Christ. And the church has failed in demonstrating the almighty power of God in changing people for his own glory. I'm guilty of hypocrisy. And we're tired of hearing about, well, I'm a Catholic, well, I'm a Christian, while supporting murder, while supporting theft, while supporting unjust trials while supporting the condemnation of any people, whether they be white, black, brown, yellow, green, purple, blue, who cares? That's a reason why the church ought to hate the very term social justice instead of God's justice. And God is inspecting us this morning. What a, what a, what a delight, what a privilege. We must admit that we need his continuing education. We need his continuing enlightenment. We need his continuing searching of our hearts and showing us our ways so that we can confess our sins, so that we can acknowledge and openly confess our love to him and our devotion and our commitment with one another as a church body to do what? Well, to live as becometh of a Christian. 
Isn't that one of the vows we take? When we join a reformed church is that we would promise to live as becometh of a Christian. Not a Presbyterian, right? Not a Baptist, a Christian. One who loves God and loves his salvation and loves the word of God. One who wants to walk in his ways and obey him. One who truly, sincerely desires the things of God over the things of this world. Because this world is passing away. God reserves the right as the superior of superiors to come and give inspection. Do you know that's one of the duties of a superior? You go back and you read the larger catechism on the fifth commandment when it talks about the duties of superiors. And what is a duty? One of the duties of the superiors to come in what? Discountenance evil. To countenance good. That means to encourage, to encourage the evil to confess their evil ways. Confess their sin. To discourage it. You know, no more of this, well, I can't say anything. We have a moral duty. If we are in a superior place, we have a moral duty to what? To correct evil. But we also should be encouraging good. You know the why it's so important for us to encourage one another? It's not, you know, I'm not saying, you know, everybody's everybody's superior and all. Well, the point being, though, there's a, there's a, a um, benefit to encouragement, to encourage one another, to acknowledge when someone does good is not to worship man, beloved. It's to acknowledge what God has done in that person and it's good to acknowledge that person's good works. So that God is ultimately glorified. I could go on, but I won't for the sake of time. But you can see we will probably be back next week. In verse 12, he says to him, the king speaks to the one who does not have the wedding garment. And he says to him, he says, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Now, the wedding clothes can only rightly, biblically, theologically represent the righteousness of Christ. Remember, in Adam and Eve were naked. In Christ, we're clothed. We're clothed. We are either, look, there's only one of two things. Uh, you go to Galatians 3, write that down in your notes, spend this afternoon meditating, reflecting on Galatians 3. It's a book that I would love to preach here in the next coming months, if I could ever get through with the parables. But we're, in not a, we're not in a hurry. When the Galatians were on the verge of, of giving up grace, Paul tells them the only other position you can have is either that of grace, which is a gift of God, or that of works, which requires perfection. To do works is to live by your works and is to do them perfectly or, or you're condemned. 
these wedding clothes represents the needed, imputed righteousness that all born sinners have need of, of rejecting their own natural righteousness, which is offensive in God's sight, because he desires complete perfection of life, thought, word, and deed, and we have failed miserably at it, and is to embrace the life, the, the righteousness of Christ, his perfect life. It's to embrace all of that and to accept it as our own, that when we stand before God, our confidence our confidence is that we have put our faith in the one that God sent, Emmanuel, God with us as our Savior, and we have put our trust and we rest in him as the one who God receives his righteousness. It's acceptable in his height. It's truly justifying righteousness. And that's how we are justified, and that's the confidence we have when we stand before God and we say, you know, why should I let you into my heaven? You might be familiar with that question through evangelism explosion. Why should I let you into my heaven? When the answer is on the basis of a perfect life, just not yours, Christ's. And this man did not have the robe of Christ's righteousness on. He was still in his naked guilt and offensive works. And it did not cut it. The king was offended that this man did not possess the garment that the king provided. That was the whole nature of the parable that when you're invited to the feast of the king that he would hand out these robes, these garments for all of the guests to wear. Well, this man didn't have the king's gift. And the king is justly offended at his neglect of grace. Rightly so. Why is this important? Well, I, I think for us this morning, the parable should incite us to consider whether or not we possess the wedding garment, right? Do you have the wedding garment? Are you robed in the righteousness of Christ, right? What are you trusting in this morning? Are you trusting in your heritage, Christian heritage? Are you trusting in the testimony of your mom and dad, grandparents? Are you trusting in the strength of your church? Are you trusting in the... Um, faithfulness of your church? Is, are you trusting in that rather than Christ? What is your righteousness? Listen, see, beloved, listen, because I'm going to get into more detail of this next week, but here's what I want to, I want to leave you with this. I want you to understand. I want you to contemplate. I want you to consider what is it that I trust in? 
What do I glory in? What do I brag about the most? Do I brag about all the things I do or do I brag about the strength of Christ working in me? What's the most important thing to me this morning? Now, ask your question. Again, let's take it a step further. You can say, well, it's all God and nothing but God, Pastor. Fantastic. How does that translate into the enjoyment of the means of grace? Remember, this is a feast. What do you do at a feast? You enjoy yourselves, right? What do we do at weddings? We have fun. We have fun. Now, it's not that I'm saying that the church is a fairground. That's not my point. But I can tell you this, beloved. There should be question marks around any person, man or woman or young person, that does not truly delight in the means of grace. You understand? Delight in the means of grace. Delight in the means of grace. To delight in the means of grace, to delight in the feast is to take delight in the king. He's the host. He threw the feast. He provided all that is enjoyed in the feast, just like our salvation. That the means of grace facilitate for us a means by which we can express and demonstrate outwardly the inward desire of our love for God. Because when I come to these rightly, I am glorifying and blessing and showing my deep love and appreciation for Almighty God. Amen. My question again this morning for you, what are you trusting in? And then how are you daily expressing that trust? How does it exhibit itself? What are you delighting in right now? What will you delight in tomorrow? What will you delight in until we are gathered back here on the next Lord's Day if we're all, by God's grace, still here, right? What are we going to delight in? For we have many, many distractions, amen. Many distractions and, and many things that do require our attention, but not more, not more, not more than Almighty God. Beloved, pick up the wedding garment if you haven't. If you have the wedding garment, let me encourage you to keep it clean. Don't defile it. Keep it washed in the blood of the Lamb. Keep before the throne of God in prayer. Draw near to Christ. He'll draw near to you. If you don't have the wedding garment, pick it up. Don't leave here and go, you know, Pastor, that was, that's, I'm going to, I'm going to. No, pick it up and put it on today. Today is the day of salvation. 
You don't want to be bound hand and foot and cast in utter darkness, which will be the reality of all who do not make use of the means of grace and the means of salvation. Let's pray. Now, Father, we have seen this sin of abusing your grace is grievous in your sight. And Father, forgive us if we are even guilty of that. Forgive us, Lord, where we have minimized the means of grace. Forgive us where we have not given true weight to the means of grace. Lord, we pray that this morning each and every one here would renew our love and our interest, our desire for you would be renewed. Well, Lord, we would renew it in the confession of our own hearts before you right now. That even in the taking of the Lord's Supper, we would rest in Christ. We would outwardly, openly rest in Christ, demonstrating our communion and fellowship with him. Demonstrating that his broken body and his shed blood was for me and for the church, your people, Oh, Father, now bless this word savingly unto your elect. Bless it to the glorifying of your name. Bless it, Lord, through the strengthening of this body. And, Lord, these people and these families, these old people and young people alike, Lord, raise us up, Lord, not in our own power, but in the power of Almighty God to give a true testimony in a sense of love and, Lord, grace that we have, Lord, in this covenant. Let us rejoice in this covenant. Let us rejoice in the means of grace, Lord. Let it be from out of a genuinely changed and guiltless heart. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.